Hello, everybody, and welcome to Chasing Phantom, the podcast about Broadway's longest-running shows. I'm your host, David Timberline, and the weekend I'm recording this, we've just heard some horrible news about the effect of the writer's strike on the Tony Award broadcast. It seems pretty likely at this point that the broadcast will be canceled, which is very unfortunate, particularly for those productions that count on exposure from the Tonys to boost their bona fides as well as their box office. You who are listening to this are living in the future, and maybe everything has been resolved with a happy ending for all. As a writer, personally, I am pro-writers on this one, and should indeed the Tonys not go on, I encourage everyone to instead listen to Chasing Phantom. We've got back episodes that you might have missed. You can also listen to my other podcast convince me I care with my good friend Grace. We have a show just about fancy award shows that you might want to look up. If you can't celebrate current productions, I hope you can at least learn something about the history of Broadway through this podcast, which will be a good thing in the long run for all of us anyway, right? Today, we're talking about the dance play Contact. It's a bit of an odd duck in the pantheon of Broadway favorites for reasons I will get into with my fantastic guest, Dr. Julinda Lewis, my go-to know-it-all for all things dance-related. So let's get to it. Okay, well, welcome to Chasing Phantom. This is David Timberline, and I am so happy because I am here to talk about the show Contact with somebody who will make up for my deep abiding ignorance around anything involving dance. (laughs) And that is Dr. Jolinda Lewis. Thank you for being here. Jolinda is a dancer, teacher, and a writer, and currently a core member of M.K. Abadu's Hoptown Performance Troupe. Did I say your last name right? It's Abadu, but that was pretty good. Okay. (laughs) M.K. Abedu's Hoptown Performance Troupe. I've talked to M.K. She's amazing. Sounds like it's an amazing project. Jalinda is also an adjunct professor at VCU and a co-founder with me and a few other folks of the Richmond Theater Community Circle that's been running for 15 years now. Whew. Okay. We're going to be talking about Contact. Thank you for coming in, first of all. Well, thank you for inviting me and thank you for introducing me to Contact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was hoping, I was kind of praying that maybe there was a small chance that you had seen it when it ran, but you know so much more about dance and choreography than I will ever know. So I'm glad that I'm talking about you instead of having to be on my own. <laughs> but So let's talk a little bit about Contact. It ran for 1,010 performances on Broadway. It opened early in 2000 and closed later in 2002. And I, I only have this for some shows, but the final box office for Contact was $60 million, $60.2 million, which is about $93 million in 2023 dollars. Mm. So yeah, it made some made some good change. It won four Tony Awards, including Best Musical. It won Best Choreography, which is probably not a stretch. It also won Best Featured Actress for Karen Ziemba, who beat out her co-star in Contact, Deborah Yates. So, and I also just wanted to mention as an aside that while Contact is only the 119th longest running show of all shows, it is the longest running show that ever ran at the Lincoln Center's Beaumont stage. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I had actually seen South Pacific that was at the, at the Lincoln Center for a long time with Richmond resident Gerald Solomon, and uh, it stopped just short of a thousand performances. It ran for like nine ninety six. Oh, so, yeah. couldn't they just squeezed in one more weekend? I know. I guess I, I guess they were not focused yeah. on the thousand <laughs> performance threshold. A little background on where Contact came from. It may be hard to remember now, but at the end of the twentieth century, it was kind of a transitionary weird time for the American musical. Disney was really getting into the into the Broadway scene. The Lion King was settling in for its long, long, still-going run on Broadway. And other high-profile 
profile adaptations of other intellectual property like Footloose and Aida were also on Broadway at that time. But there wasn't a whole lot of like original, not based on other IP productions. So I actually quote on my website, the World of Theater Compendium, which says the golden age of musicals seemed to be very far away indeed. But at the turn of the century, there seemed to be this surge of like, there was a great interest in new work to be produced on Broadway. And so at that point, Susan Stroman, who was a director choreographer, had this idea to do a dance play. And I called my dear friend John Wyman and we got together and worked on a story that would be accessible to New Yorkers. The idea of, you know, New Yorkers fight to live on top of each other and can never seem to make contact. So uh, we came up with this story about uh, a girl in a yellow dress. And she kind of purposely did not go by any conventions. You know, it's not a musical or a play by any conventional means. It's very distinctly a dance-oriented show that uses pre-recorded music, and people loved it. It was, you know, like I said, it won four Tony Awards. People were charmed by the stories that were included in the dances, and it kind of threw the Broadway establishment into a little tizzy. They didn't know what to do with the show, so they ended up creating a new Tony Award category called Best Special Theatrical Event, and that was pretty much directly a result of contact. But that was after the fact. Right. Yeah. So they didn't know what to do with it (laughs) at the time. So has anyone else ever won that new category? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. They've been that. That's been happening since. But it's it's always anything that involves magic. Or I, I think the big mm. thing is the pre-recorded music. Yeah, especially for a Broadway show, a musical that pre-recorded music is, I think, quite unusual. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. And the unions get kind of upset about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand that. Right. But having to create a new category that sounds familiar because yeah. um, RTCC has had to do that on that's several right. occasions. Yeah. Well, and I think. We've had to deal with that situation, too, of shows that use pre-recorded music, say they're musicals. It's a different feel. It's a very distinctly different show. Yeah. Yeah. So you did not see Contact. I did not. I did a little background reading on it, and I did see part of a video of uh, part Mm -hmm. two. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's, uh, so the way the show was shaped is it's basically three distinct acts and each there's a kind of story built into each one. And it's really about relationships. Each story is about different relationships and set in different time periods, has different props, distinctly different music. The one that Jolinda mentioned is one that is actually the only one that I saw as well online, uh, which uses Robert Palmer's Simply Irresistible, which is a very, you know, very high energy, intense song great for dancing. I mean, it was a very popular music video. I told you I don't dance. That's cool. But you know, my friend, the night is young. So what did you think of what you did see? I found it very intriguing and I wanted to see more of it. So yeah. I'm going to be searching around to see if I can find more of it since since I don't have an opportunity right now to see it live. Yeah, I know. Well, and apparently Lincoln Center did do a full recording of the whole performance. I looked for it, didn't see it. You know, what do you think if you were developing a show like this or if you were in Susan Stroman's mind? I, I'm still kind of surprised that this was so popular. And how do you think you go about creating a story like this just out of dance? That, that's kind of an interesting question because I know among people that I know or have heard of, people either love musicals or they hate them. <laughs> that's true. I don't quite trust people who dislike musicals. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think they're a little weird. 
weird. But um, <laughs> when you go to a musical, you generally expect to have live music. I mean, one of the things that people often do is, you know, they, they run down front to take a peek in the orchestra pit. That's right. I actually had an opportunity to sit in the orchestra pit with a friend when oh. Bringing the Noise, Bringing the Funk was here. Oh, really? Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Which was a different perspective. Yeah. But um, I can't understand how having recorded music, how that wasn't an obstacle to this becoming so popular. Yeah. The music itself is wonderful, and I think people would appreciate hearing it played sure. live. So that's a mystery. I, I need to explore that a little more. Yeah. Well, and I also feel like, because, you know, I've had, I've known people who have played in, you know, four orchestras for shows. So much of what is happening is you're interacting with what's happening on stage, and you have to respond, and there's cues you need to be aware of. So, yeah, that does seem very odd. And I would have thought for the dancers, too, a little bit of a challenge, like if they miss a half step and now they're offbeat somehow, that must have been really challenging. Well, I like dance dancing personally with live music, Mm -hmm. but there are some challenges that are presented because sometimes the live music suddenly takes an unexpected turn (laughs) um, and you may have choreographed exactly to the beats or the counts and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you're on a different riff and you've got to change to adjust to what's happening. So that can be a bit of a challenge. Using a track is actually easier as far as not missing a step, but as far as the energy that gets projected to the audience now, you lose that because, as you said, there's some interaction between the orchestra, the live musicians, and the dancers. And I, I just can't imagine not having that in a Broadway show. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, it obviously worked. I mean, <laughs> I just, I have a couple um, reviews from The Time. The New York Times at the time gushed that Contact did what few musicals do these days. There's a sense of euphoric connection between the audience and what is happening on stage. And Dance Magazine said, hopefully this show will elevate dance's role a notch in theatrical visibility. It very quickly became clear that one of the benefits of the show is that it transcended culture. And so very quickly they developed uh, international versions of the show and it went to Hungary and Poland and China, South Korea, all these different places because dialogue wasn't important. You didn't have to worry Mm. about that. So let's see. But then I think that might be the point that you're hitting on is that some people have referred to dance as a universal language and that you can generally get an idea about what's going on from the movement even if you don't understand the words. I, as a dance as a teacher of dance history would disagree. Oh, really? It's not entirely universal okay. because if you don't understand the gestural language of another culture, mm, um, yeah. you can misinterpret some things. Like okay. I, I actually, you know, teach some workshops on gestures you should not make when you travel. <laughs> really? Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> because giving the, the thumbs up here mm-hmm. means, you know, that's good. Right. But in some places in the world, that's the same as giving someone the middle finger. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I will take that tip. <laughs> so yeah. in, in those kinds of uh, situations, if you're not familiar with the gestural language of a particular culture, sure. you may be missing something because you may think, oh, that's so sweet. And they're really giving you the bird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, well, it, that makes me think about contact in particular because the clip that we both saw, the section, mm. it's a woman, very striking woman in a very kind of, uh, I mean, it's not slinky by today's standards, but if I imagine by, you know, 70s, 80s standards, it was pretty slinky yellow dress. And she's doing some very kind of provocative movements. I'm kind of wondering how that translated in places like, I don't know, South Korea or, you know. Yeah, uh, that's interesting because what's considered provocative mm. in different cultures varies. Yeah. But I, I think that people are familiar enough with the American mm, aesthetic, movement yeah. language or aesthetic yeah. that they do get it. Right. And so did you, when you watched the clip of the Simply Irresistible, woman in a yellow dress walks into a bar, draws everybody's attention. Did the story, you know, resonate with you? Did you get it right away? Or <laughs> Well, yeah, because it, it reminds me of some choreography that I've seen in, in dance companies. Okay. And, um, you know, kind of like that jazzy, um, sultry mm-hmm. kind of choreography that yeah. was often done in the 60s again. Okay. So, yeah, it, it did resonate. But then again, I'm, I might not be the best person to ask because I like every genre. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so again, I know virtually nothing about dance, but I know that there was a, you know, that Bob Fosse was kind of a seminal fi- figure. Absolutely. And is this, would this be like pre-Fosse then or same time or is you know, is Stroman considered in the same echelon as Fosse? Now, or see, if I had known you were going to ask me that, I would have <laughs> looked that up. So I really don't know, but I would say it's probably around the same time period. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because none of it, I mean, I think part of what was interesting to me, too, is that nothing that I saw, and again, you know, we didn't see a whole lot, none of it seemed particularly avant-garde or, I mean, it seemed pretty straightforward yeah. from a dance perspective. And even, um, did you see the part with the, the woman and her husband and the restaurant? Right, right, right. I know with that one, it was more even classical in a way. Right. So I think that what probably resonates with people more is the the storyline. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and people always make fun of how in, in musicals people are just doing something and all of a sudden they burst out in song. Right. But in this case, they would suddenly burst out in dance. Right. And yeah. you didn't necessarily have to be dancing in the sure. restaurant, but, you know, yeah. there it was. Right. So the, the woman in the yellow, that in itself was um, just kind of like a quirky, iconic thing that yeah, yeah. that caught your attention. And yeah. the, the the bright yellow, you know, people have associations with yellow and right. happiness and being, you know, someplace tropical, or, you know. <laughs> right. So yeah. that, I think, fires up certain expectations. Sure. Yeah. Well, and it was interesting when I was thinking about just the, the length that I've been doing this podcast, which is like, not very long. We one of the first shows we the, the first show we talked about was Newsies, which has a good story to it. But part of what it, you know, the person I was interviewing at the time about the show, part of what made the Broadway productions so brought it to the next level was the dancing. And I think there, I think maybe what my this is my perception at least projecting into the past. I think there is a certain level of hunger for very high-level dance. And people sometimes are maybe intimidated to go to a modern dance performance or a ballet performance because they're they're 
they think they're not going to understand it right. somehow. So it seems to me like this maybe made dance, which is fun to watch, particularly mm-hmm. when it's done at a really high level, accessible to people in a different way. That people thought they were just going to see a show, which is maybe not as intense. You don't feel like you have to come in knowing anything, but you don't really need to know a whole lot to enjoy dance. Right. right. And, I, and I think there are other shows that have set the standard for that. You know, if you, if you think of a show like Chorus Line mm. or 42nd Street, one of the most memorable parts of that was the dancing. Right. Um, even today, like, I would go back to see some of those shows as well as, say, West Side Story right. or In the Heights. Sure. Without the dancing, yeah. they would not have been the shows that they were. Right, yeah. Well, and I, it was funny because uh, my wife saw Hamilton in D.C. last year, and I had seen it before and was thinking, oh, I don't really need to see it again, whatever. And what she kind of reminded me, and I think maybe this production I saw didn't, the the dancing and the movement wasn't as good. And she said she had forgotten how much that adds to the show. You can listen to the music from Hamilton and get a whole lot. You can get you mm-hmm. know, the, the plot and, and a lot of the interaction. But when you see it performed and that movement, when it's, again, when it's done at that high level, it, it really takes it to another level, I think. Yeah. 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 I remember um, the first time I saw Lion King on Broadway, uh, yeah. um, I was sitting in an aisle seat and one of the birds came down the aisle and I got brushed by the costume. <laughs> and I was like ready to faint. You know, right. it was like those moments when, when, when women would throw their, their panties at Elvis. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't even that it was something that everybody would recognize as dance because right. it was movement. It was puppetry. Yeah. It was a lot of different things together. But it was the fact that it was moving. Right. And that the story was being told yeah. in the movement right. that captured you. And I think that makes it something that's enjoyable, not just across cultures, but across generations. Right. You know, it's the kind of thing where a young child going to their first show can be captivated and want to see more. Right. That's a really good point. Well, I will give you another little fun fact, which is that Tony Award nominee Deborah Yates, who is not the one who won, <clears throat> she was dating Michael Bolton during the run of Contact, which is kind of fun. Um, <laughs> Deborah Yates also has kind of dropped out of out of the scene. I'm not sure what she's doing right now, but her last professional credit was the movie Deception in 2008. And just to kind of wrap up on Contact itself, despite the hopeful comments in Dance Magazine, Contact didn't quite revolutionize the theater world. There wasn't a whole series of dance plays that followed. There were productions like Stomp that existed before and Mm -hmm. after. And there was another dialogue free show that opened during the same that opened during the 1999-2000 season called Swing. But there's never really been anything like Contact. And it makes me think it would be really cool that somebody, uh, it just seems like it's a great opportunity for somebody to revive it. So I wonder why there hasn't been another I mean, you know, there hasn't been a a copycat or an inspired by spinoff. Right. It could be the level of the intensity of the work that's required to do that. Really? I mean, it, it, it's hard work. I mean, yeah. acting is hard. Dancing is physically <laughs> more demanding. Right. Um, you get hurt. You get injured in a show like that. You, you, you've you you got to keep a physical therapist on staff oh, in yeah. the back. Wow. <laughs> yeah, well, I, it just feels like, though, that there's so many more dance programs on TV, at least, the reality TV shows. Mm. That there, there seems to be plenty of interest in dance. It seems like maybe they could pull some together. You would think maybe somebody's working on something now. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. But um, I, I know that I personally am very much interested in shows that have dance. Um, I 
love to see them. If you see two versions of it, one of the first things I'll notice is that, oh, the dancing wasn't up to par in this version. <laughs> right. um, the, the energy just wasn't there. Yeah. Or if you, you have actors who dance versus dancers who act, Ooh, you've got to yeah. be really, really good oh, to yeah. pull that off. Oh, man, that is such a good point. There are so many shows, particularly in a medium-sized market like Richmond, Virginia, which we're at, where you see a lot of actors who are kind of being shoehorned into having to dance and they're not necessarily always I can great. think of one who is really good at that. <laughs> well, <laughs> really yeah. yeah. You have to be you have to be physically adept just in general, yeah. I do. Well, I always give every show based on what I can glean about the show. I give it a grade just because people like grades. I gave <laughs> <laughs> I gave contact an A minus only knocking it down a bit because of the pre-recorded music. Mm. Even though it was really good pre-recorded music. Yeah. It's um that just makes it seem a little less than absolutely top-notch. Yeah. Notch. And I, I have not seen the whole show, but I would have to say that from a, my perspective as a viewer and from a teacher and a historian, <laughs> I could not give it an A or an A+ based on that. It yeah. would have to be a B+ or an A-. Okay. Well, we're in alignment. Yay. <laughs> I I know nothing, but I I feel like now I know more and I feel like I've been validated by you <laughs> agreeing with my grade. <laughs> so thank you. I think that'll do it. Thank you very much. Wow, that was quick. Yeah. Well, All right. <laughs> that was fun. Okay, a quick follow-up on the wonderful conversation Jalinda and I just had about Contact. Uh, the first production to win the Best Special Theatrical Event Tony Award, which was the award was inspired by Contact, was the show Fool Moon, a 1999 show built around so-called new vaudeville clowning that starred Bill Irwin, David Shiner, and the Red Clay Ramblers. Bill Irwin, I'm sure, is familiar to many people, and this show that basically couldn't be pigeonholed into a play or a musical or, or something else got the first one of these Best Special Theatrical Event. Tony's. Winners in subsequent years included Broadway runs of one-person shows from people like Dame Edna, Billy Crystal, and Elaine Stritch. And the Deaf Poetry Jam also won uh, one of these awards in 2003. So, for our next episode in two weeks, I'll be talking about the classic musical Grand Hotel, and I'll be talking to a classic theater aficionado and the celebrated executive director of the Richmond Triangle Players, Mr. Phil Crosby. I've been very anxious to have him on, and this will be the perfect show for him to expound on and draw from his deep historical background. You are all in for a treat. As always, please visit my website, ChasingPhantom.net. Chasing Phantom is a production of Timber Todd Pods. And please listen to our other currently running podcast, Convince Me I Care, which I already mentioned. You can go to either TimberToddPods.com or ConvinceMeICare.com to find out more. You can also always send us email at TimberToddPods at gmail.com. The composer, Mason Timberline, is responsible for that inspired theme song music that you hear at the top of the show. Please follow, rate, and review Chasing Phantom on all the podcast platforms. But most important, please come back in two weeks for our next episode. I'll see you then. Bye.